tortured and killed. But on the third day, he will rise. Father, I asked if this cup could be taken from me, but only if it was your will. Today, your will is done. The ones who mock me, the ones who strike me, the ones who draw these nails through my hands. Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't see what even the criminal beside me has seen. Now, it is finished. Welcome your children. May they now come boldly to the throne of grace. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. seek the living among the dead. Don't you remember? The Son of Man was crucified and buried, but it's the third day. He is not here. He has risen. He's alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hey, uh, this Sunday we're starting a series that we are calling Absolute, and um, we are going to journey through the book of Luke. And the question that we are going to answer for you right away is, why would we call this series Absolute? What's the, what's the reasoning behind the name? And if you think about it, there are very few things in your life that you can really count on that you can take to the bank, right? People are going to disappoint you, right? Your stuff is going to become obsolete, whatever phone you're holding in your hand. Whatever phone you're holding in your hand is going to become obsolete. Whatever you have, your money doesn't go as far as you want it to. Your college degree didn't open nearly as many doors as you thought it might. Um, The truth of the matter is uh, there are very few things that that are absolute. Uh, But there is one thing. There is one thing that's absolute. There's one thing that you can count on. Jesus said, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God is absolute. And God's truth is absolute. And God's word is absolute. And we actually live in a society that says truth is relative. But the fact is, there is a moral code. There is right. There is wrong. There is truth. God is truth, God's word is truth, and we have this opportunity to uh, study the book of Luke and look at what is actually absolute. Let me share just a couple things about the gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke is written by a guy named Luke. It's not a trick question. Everybody's like, don't answer, don't answer. The pastor's asking a question, 
It's a trick question every time. It wasn't a trick question. What you may not know is that Luke is a doctor. Uh, Luke is a close companion with Paul, traveled with Paul quite a bit. Luke is also the author of the book of Acts. They were actually written kind of as one book, uh, Luke and Acts together. Uh, but Luke is friends with many of the apostles, and he says in one of the opening verses, I think we're not going to have the TV here, but ignore the people behind me. Uh, Luke 1, 4, he says, I wrote this letter that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. I wrote this that you may have certainty, that you may be absolutely sure. The gospel is written to us to help us to be certain about our faith, to have a much more of a grounding in what the, the gospel says. So the question I want to share with you this morning, or I want you to think about this morning, is the question, where are you? Now, I'm not asking from a physical standpoint, because I know where you are, because I'm here with you, but where are you emotionally? Where are you spiritually? Where are you? We talk a lot about grace, about being a, a church without curtains. When you hear me say that, really what we're saying is we want to be a church where we can be honest with one another, where we can be honest with God, where we can come to church and just really be honest about where we are. We don't want to play church. We don't want to pretend. We don't want to put on pretenses. We want to be able to be honest about where we are with God. A group of people, a community of people that are just living honestly and trying to figure out how to walk honestly with Jesus. So where are you? Who is Jesus to you? How would you describe your response to the Easter story, to the story of Jesus? Where are you with God? We're want, launching the series in the Gospel of Luke, but because it's Easter Sunday, we're going to start at the end of the Gospel and then go back. Have you ever watched a great movie and you kind of see the climactic scene at the beginning, right? And then the rest of the movie is sort of the story of how we got to that scene, whether that's a book that you read or a movie, that's sort of how we're going to approach Luke. So we're going to spend time in the last two chapters of Luke. We're going to see sort of this climactic moment in this particular gospel, but then we're going to work our way back over the next few weeks and months, and we are going to see the people and the circumstances and the historical events and the prophecies that all led to this amazing moment that we're celebrating here this morning. So I've asked Meg to come up, and Meg's going to read, and we're going to do things a little bit differently. This is usually where I say grab your Bibles, but I don't want you to grab your Bibles. I want you to listen as Meg reads from the Gospel of Luke, the last couple chapters, and I want you to engage your imagination. So what we need to understand is this was more common, really, for the last few thousand years, this is really how this, the Word of God was, was, was put forth. People were much more illiterate. The printing press didn't exist, so people heard the Word of God. So this particular passage would have been read for decades and decades. And so I want you to listen to it, but I want you to engage your imagination. I want you to, to hear the scene as it unfolds. I want you to think about the Roman soldiers and the oppression of Rome. I want you to think about the dusty streets. I want you to smell the smells of what it must have been like to be in a first century um, village and just all of that. So let your mind kind of go, listen to the story, but I also want you to listen to the different people that come and go as Meg reads from Luke 23. Meg? A reading from the Gospel of Luke. Then they brought Jesus before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, 
I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priest and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore release him and punish him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they'd asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The religious ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. 
Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Meg. Hey, let's pray. Lord, I just pray as we uh, hear your scriptures that it would land in, in fertile soil, that it would just move us, that there would be something uh, that we hear today that would just take us to a new place in our journey with you. Our prayer this Sunday is the prayer that we pray every Sunday, that people would interact with the living God and they would leave different than they came. Help us to uh, receive what you have for us. Open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes to spiritual truth do what only you can do, and uh, help us learn from this amazing narrative about your son Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So now you can grab your Bibles. You were waiting for that. I know you were. Turn to Luke chapter 23. Uh, if you use readers, uh, if you use uh, something electronic, that's fine. We want to encourage you to check in on social media, check in on Facebook, let people know that you're at Grace learning about Jesus. Uh, Instagram, whatever you use, we encourage you just to use it. Let's uh, uh, use the idea of social network to do a little kingdom work here. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to use the narrative that Meg read, and I'm going to use it to sort of add some understanding or some clarity to the question that I already asked, where are you? We're going to see a variety of people that come and go out of this narrative, and and we're actually going to see one person that that in my opinion shows us something pretty spectacular. We're going to see one unexpected person in the narrative that gives us a picture of God's desired response to the question, where are you? So, in chapter 23, the scene starts with Jesus being brought brutally and forcefully before this guy named Pilate. And what we know from history and what we know from the scriptures is that Pilate was what was called a prefect. What that means is he was a military leader, like a general or a lieutenant, and he was placed over Jerusalem to kind of keep the peace. And if if one of the areas of the Roman rule had a prefect, it means that it wasn't important enough or wasn't desirable enough to send a Roman official, like a, a regular part of their governing people. It was kind of a place that nobody would want to go. So they put Pilate there, and really Pilate's job was literally to keep the peace and to keep the the Jews in submission to the Roman Empire. So he was a a military man, and and he had this opportunity to to, uh, 
interrogate, if you will, Jesus. More than once, actually. He has multiple interrogations. And, and so Jesus has already been arrested. He's already been brought before the, the high priest. The high priest has already tried him. That was the first of three different trials that Jesus goes through. And then he, he's in front of Pilate, and then he goes to Herod, and then he comes back to Pilate. And, and Pilate, in all these exams, finds Jesus to be not guilty. So if you look at verse 22, it says, to the crowds, this is Pilate speaking, he says, I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Now this is really important for us because when Pilate says that he's not guilty, he actually brings guilt upon himself. Because at that moment, he's going to allow an innocent man to be punished for something that he didn't do. I find him innocent, but regardless... He turns his back. So if you were to ask the question, what was, what was going on with Pilate? I would say that Pilate was indifferent. He was indifferent about this one particular person. He saw Jesus as just another Jew. The Romans have literally killed thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews by this point. They were not respected by the Romans. They didn't care. And, and Pilate himself just saw Jesus as just one more Jew. He was indifferent. No distinction, right? He makes an attempt to appease the leaders, and he says, hey, I'll give you Barabbas, but but they say, no, no, don't give us Barabbas. Give us Jesus. Crucify Jesus. And, And we know in Matthew it says that Pilate washed his hands as if to say, whatever, whatever. He's just a Jew. I don't care. If you kill another Jew, it's just another Jew. Just kill him. So Pilate is indifferent. But the question we're asking is, where are you? Are you indifferent? When you think about the person of Jesus, is he just another religious leader like Gandhi or Buddha or Muhammad? Is there any real distinction between the person of Jesus and any other religious leader that's out there? Are you indifferent about who this Jesus really is? Or maybe some of you are so comfortable being a Christian that Jesus has become indifferent to you, that you really don't think about your need for Jesus in the everyday, that it's just something that you did a long time ago, and yeah, I get the Jesus thing, but there's a bit of indifference in your spirit when you think about the person of Jesus. Where are you? Is it possible that you're indifferent this morning? So there's Pilate, but then there's this other character named Herod, and Herod is actually part of the Roman rule, right? And so Herod is over this area in Galilee, an area that would actually be pretty desirable to go to. It's beautiful. It's kind of a a vacation spot. So Herod is in Galilee, and and Herod has a completely different response to Jesus. So if you look at verse 8, chapter 23, it says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod, the ruler over Galilee, was fascinated by Jesus. He was fascinated by this magician that was going to do a performance for him. After time passes and Herod has some time with Jesus, he realizes he's not going to do any magic tricks, and he becomes bored, and he sends Jesus back to Pilate, and And he says to himself, well, I'm not going to get to see the show. I don't really care what's going to happen. Something for us to keep in mind. The the verdict of Pilate, the verdict of Herod, both saying that that Jesus is is innocent is is important because it's the fulfillment of the scriptures that say an innocent man is going to die for the guilty. 
Herod just sees Jesus as a doer of great signs and wonders, hoping to see one of these things firsthand. And if we're not careful, we become like Herod, fascinated and looking to be entertained by miracles, entertained by Jesus doing something. Jesus, earlier in his ministry, rebukes the Jewish leaders, and he says to them in the book of Matthew, he says, an evil and adulterous generation seek a sign. But we have to unpack this one for a minute. The question is, is it okay for you to want a miracle? Some of you need a miracle. Some of you, your family life is a mess. Your marriage is a mess, and you need a miracle. Your relationship with your kids is a mess, and you need a miracle. Some of you know your heart is just all twisted and turned and and, and in a bad place, and you need a miracle. Some of you are physically ill and you really desire a miracle. Is it okay for us to desire a miracle? And the answer is yes. The answer is absolutely yes. It's okay to pray with great expectation that God is going to move, that God is going to do a miracle in your life. So what's the difference? You know, the scriptures actually say that you are to come to us when you're sick and ask us as elders to lay hands on you and pray for you. And we are to do that with great expectation that God is going to heal, that God is going to move, that God is going to perform a physical and a spiritual miracle, an inner healing and an external healing, that God is in all that. So what's the difference? Why is this a bad thing? Well, Jesus was rebuking the the leaders in Matthew and, and Herod's problem is they didn't really want the person of Jesus. They just wanted the performance. They're just hanging out enough because they want to see a sign. They want to see Jesus do something really entertaining. They want to see Jesus move, but they don't want the person of Jesus. We get ourselves in trouble when we begin to see Jesus as our cosmic vending machine, giving us whatever we want. The scriptures say that we are to seek the kingdom of God first. That we are to seek the presence of God first. And here's the way it works. When you stand in the presence of the living God, miracles happen. When you literally come in contact with Jesus and Jesus becomes a part of your life, and then healing happens, inner healing happens, your heart is changed, your marriage is transformed. God is all about doing miracles, but he does those miracles as we stand in his presence, not as a way of performing for us. When your deepest desire is to be in the presence of God, God is going to do more than you can ask or think or imagine. But it's about his presence, not a performance. So Pilate is indifferent, just another Jew. Herod is fascinated and wants to see a show. And then there's these crowds. The crowds are hostile. Look at verse 23. It says, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Keep in mind, these are the same people that just a few days earlier... We're laying down palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. The literal translation of Hosanna is save us now. As Jesus came into the city, the people lined the streets and said, save us now, save us now. What were they asking for? They were asking for liberation. 
They were asking that Jesus would become a military hero, that he would liberate them from the oppression of the Romans. They had an expectation on Jesus that he was going to become the king and he was going to get rid of the Roman rule and they were going to be free from this oppression that they lived under. And when it's pretty obvious that that's not what Jesus is about, when they see him beaten and they see that he's not going to become a religious ruler, they turn on him and they become hostile. And they begin to chant, crucify him, crucify him. It's a pretty amazing picture of how things can turn. Where are you? Are there things in your life that you've asked God to do and it hasn't happened for you and that disappointment, that disillusion has turned to a hostility towards God? Is there a wound in your childhood that's so great that when you think about it, you are angry at God. God, how could you allow me to go through that? Is, is the word hostile resonate with you? Is there a hostility you have towards God because you become disillusioned or disappointed that God hasn't done everything that you thought God should do? There's others in the story that if you're not careful, you can read that narrative and sort of, sort of miss them almost altogether. But the passage in verse 48 says of these people, he says that they're hesitant. So verse, or excuse me, verse 49 says, And all of his acquaintances and the woman who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. These are some of Jesus' disciples. These are the women that had been traveling with Jesus from Galilee. Most of these women, a lot of the, the disciples had actually experienced a healing touch from Jesus. They knew Jesus. They were discipled by Jesus. But the passage says that they are standing at a distance watching. They are hesitant and they are afraid. Peter has just denied Jesus three times, denied that he even knew who he was because he was afraid of being arrested. He was afraid of being persecuted by the Romans. I think in a lot of cases we are way too hard on the disciples when we read the gospel accounts. Look, the Roman Empire they ruled by fear. They were very purposeful instilling fear in all of the people. That's how it went. So this is a festival, and, and the city of Jerusalem is bulging with people. People are camping all over. The population would swell well beyond its, its normal population. More Roman soldiers would come in, and they would try to keep the peace. And why do you suppose this is the week that they decide to do some crucifixions? Because they want to make sure every Jew knows who's in control. They want to instill fear in all of the Jews. So they take the most brutal form of capital punishment and they do it right on the streets where everybody can see that they are weak, but the Romans are strong. So fear is, is the ruling power. It's, it's how they, they, they rule. But here's what God has really showed me in the last week. Look, I, I don't have to worry about being arrested. I really don't have to worry about being beaten for my faith at least not yet, right? We live in a pretty free society to do it, what we want to do, yet there are still times in my life when I am afraid and when I am hesitant. Meg and I went to uh, uh, Oklahoma City last weekend. It was great, and on Saturday, we went and visited with a church, and we didn't know what we were getting into, or we may not have went, um, but we went in, and they said, hey, today we're going to go do street evangelism. <sighs> Yay. Right, praise God. Only I think I might have said it more like, oh, praise God. So look, we went to the mall and we told people about Jesus. I was nervous. Look, it's hard to have just cold conversations with people. There was a part of me that was literally afraid. Now, I'm glad we went and we had some 
awesome conversations. I'm sure some of that will get woven into a sermon somewhere along the way where we saw God showed up. But look, I do this for a living, and I was afraid to step out. I was hesitant to do what God is calling me to do. There are times in my life when I know that God is saying, go speak to that person, and I say, no, I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to set myself up. I don't want to feel inadequate. And here's what God is saying. Don't be hesitant. Don't be afraid. Step into it and and allow me to do whatever it is I want to do. The question I would ask you is, where are you? Are you hesitant? Are you holding God at arm's length? Maybe you even know who Jesus is, but it's sort of like, yeah, I want Jesus, but but, but I want him kind of at a distance. What is it that, that you're afraid of? What is it that's creating that? Look, fear is a powerful, but it is a very dangerous thing. What are you afraid of if you truly surrender your life to Jesus? Are you afraid of losing control? Are you afraid he's going to ask you to do something that you don't want to do? Are you afraid he's going to make you stop doing something that you really like to do? Or maybe you're afraid that if you really follow Jesus the way you know he's calling you to, then you're going to lose some pretty important friends in your life, that they're going to reject you. They're not going to want to hang out with you because it's not cool anymore. What is it? that you're afraid of. The word of God says in 2 Timothy that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. So we've seen the indifference of Pilate. We've seen the fascination of Herod. We've seen the hostility of the crowds. We've seen this hesitation and this, this fear from the followers and There's this other guy that I want to bring to mind, and his name is Joseph. And if you go further down, this is after the death of Jesus, we get to hear about Joseph. And he is a Pharisee or a Sadducee. We don't really know, but he's one of the religious leaders. And I already talked about the religious leaders and the crowds being hostile, but there's something very different about this guy named Joseph. There's something different in who he is. So look at verse 51, because it says, he had not consented to their decision, their decision being the, the ruler. So he had been in the room, he had watched, and he said he didn't agree with what they were doing. He didn't consent to their action. And then listen to this, it says, he was looking for the kingdom of God. That is a cool sentence. This Pharisee or Sadducee was searching the kingdom of God. He was looking for something more. What did Jesus say? He says, seek first the kingdom of God. Chase after the things of God. Want to see God move in your life. I love this. This this Pharisee who sometimes we put them all in one particular bunch, but here's one that was searching for the kingdom of God. And the question is, where are you? Are you searching? Have you come to the place where you know there's got to be more to life than just this? There's got to be more. Are you searching for more joy? Are you searching for more fulfillment, more satisfaction? Jesus says, hey, if you walk with me, if you turn to me, if you truly embrace me, I want to give you life, but not just life. I want to give you abundant life. Where are you? So if we circle back and we go just a a little bit uh, earlier in this narrative before the death of Jesus, there is this one person that I kind of alluded to at the beginning that, that I want to highlight. And he is the one whose response to Jesus really stands apart from all of the others. And what I love about it is he is the least likely character to be a model for all of us. There are two criminals on the cross on each side of Jesus. 
And one of them begins to ridicule Jesus. And what he says to him is, hey, save yourself. And while you're at it, don't forget us. Right? But he's not doing it in, a, in any kind of real way. He's just basically ridiculing Jesus. He's, he's just throwing insults like many of the crowd were at the time. But, but this second thief on the cross, he rebukes him. Right? He, he says to, to the guy, he says, look, don't you know we are both guilty? We both deserve this punishment. The second criminal does the completely unexpected. Look at verse 40. He says to the first criminal, do you not fear God? since we are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, in other words, we are guilty, for we are receiving the due rewards for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then the criminal, the second criminal, looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The thief on the cross knows three things, and these three things are true of each in every person in this room. First, he knows that he's guilty. He knows that his sin is real. He knows that he's messed up. He knows that he is being justly punished. This, this guy on the cross knows without a shadow of a doubt, I am here because I am a sinner. The second thing he knows is he cannot save himself. He is going to die on that cross. He has no ability to save himself. As a matter of fact, the whole idea of the crucifixion is the more you struggled, the worse it was. The more you struggled, the less you could breathe. The more you struggled, you had to lay there as calm as you could and die a slow and agonizing death. He knew that he was under a death sentence. And the third thing he knew is that Jesus was a king and that Jesus could save him. In his desperation, he cries out and he says, when you come into your kingdom. He knows that he has a kingdom that makes him a king. And he says, remember me. So Pilate was indifferent and Herod was fascinated. The crowds were hostile. The followers were hesitant and they were afraid. Joseph was searching, but the criminal on the cross was overcome. He was overcome with his own guilt. He was overcome with his inability to fix himself. He was overcome with the circumstances he was in. And more than all of that, he was overcome with the person of Jesus. He knew that the only chance he had of overcoming his circumstances was to reach out and cry out for Jesus. And all he says is, Jesus, remember me. And as Jesus dies the most agonizing death in human history, Jesus looks across and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus saves in the midst of dying on the cross. It's an amazing picture of the gospel. But here's the deal. No one ever turns their lives over to Jesus unless they come to the end of themselves. Until you and I realize that we cannot save ourselves, until you and I realize that we have made a mess of our lives, until we realize sin is a part of our lives, we don't turn our lives over to Jesus. The power of the gospel is that love overcomes our fear, that love overcomes the fascination, love overcomes our indifference, love overcomes our hostility, love overcomes all of those emotions that hold us back. It's the criminal that shows us the way. And the truth is, none of this would matter 
if this were the end of the story, verse 46 says, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. You know what that means? He died. But the story isn't over. There's still another chapter in Luke. Easter is here. It's Sunday morning. Jesus has risen. He has risen. He has risen. So we have in this narrative these two women who go on, on Sunday to the tomb and they go to prepare a corpse. They go to take care of a dead body. They have no expectation of a risen Jesus. They wouldn't have the, the spices with them. They wouldn't be going to do this if they thought he was going to be alive. They are going expecting to find a corpse. And it says that there were angels there in dazzling apparel. I love that one of my favorite little quips, dazzling apparel. I think of the bedazzles. Not sure that's what they had. Just saying, dazzling apparel. And they asked the million-dollar question. This is the question that's been with me all week, the question that I've even been asking to myself, the question you should ask yourself, the question that really is another way of saying, where are you? They say, why do you seek the living among the dead? The question I would ask you is, where are you seeking to find life but all you're finding is death. What is that thing you're turning to thinking that this is going to be different? This is really going to give me what I need. And in the end, you feel more empty and you feel the sting of death. Jesus died and he rose again. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you're overcome with the circumstances of your life, you need to allow the only one who is life to step in and overcome what you're battling. This morning is an invitation for life, abundant life, full life. Are you holding Jesus at a distance? Have you really embraced everything that he has for you? When you turn to anything other than Jesus for life, you only will find death. This is the absolute truth. Jesus is the only way to life. So this Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate this invitation the resurrection and the invitation to have life because of the Father's love through the Son and what he displayed on the cross, we are offered life, not just eternal life for after we die, but life right now. It's a great promise. So John and the band are going to come, and we're going to sing one more song, and the song is really a, uh, a beautiful picture of overcoming. It's a song about the fact that he has overcome. I want to encourage you to sing the song kind of as an anthem. Uh, but I want to pray for you. Lord, I just pray right now for the people in this room. If there's anyone in this room that today's the day that this makes sense, that they know that their life is a mess, that they can't get this right without you, Lord, I just pray that in this moment they would pray, Lord, remember me. Jesus, remember me. Jesus, I give my life to you. I surrender control to you. Lord, I pray that there are people in this room who would make that simple prayer and become sons and daughters of the Most High God. For the, for the people in this room who are holding you at a distance because they're afraid of what that commitment will mean, afraid of doing what they know you're going to call them to do. Lord, I pray that they let go of the fear and they know that the Spirit of God has given us a spirit of, of being bold and courage. Lord, help us to know the love of the Father displayed through the Son on the cross. 
Help us to know that whatever God has for us is so much better than what we could have for ourselves. So Lord, as John leads us in song, help us to celebrate that you have overcome. You have overcome our indifference. You have overcome our fascination. You have overcome our fears and our hostility and our distance from you. You've you've even stepped into our searching and displayed the love of the Father to us. So Lord, help us to just walk in the truth that we can overcome through your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing. Thank you.